Missionaries are weird people. I'm going to tell you that right now. We are trapped between cultures. We are trapped between ways of doing things. So do not be surprised this morning if my message, I start preaching to you like you are an African crowd. That may be a little different. I'm going to start by that by apologizing to Pastor Mike because we had a cultural hiccup this morning. As I walk to greet him, and he's carrying an armful of, of books in one hand, the guitar strapped over his back, and his guitar case here, I reached out for that handshake. You know, in an American culture, that's wrong, right? Because I'm going to make him set down all his stuff. I'm going to inconvenience him. So I'm just going to say hi to him. But in African culture, if I don't grip that hand, I've caused great offense. So Pastor Mike, I'm sorry. <laughs> Well, this message this morning, this message is going to be a little bit different. In a broad sense, we're going to look at what Christ calls us to as Christians and, and as his church. And then from an outside perspective, from an African perspective, we're going to look at a couple of areas and how our American culture has a mandate. And while I'm going to reference some, some biblical texts, for the most part, I'm going to be hitting on larger themes. But a lot of our verses today are going to be in the book of 1 Peter. So if you would turn to 1 Peter, I, I would appreciate that. Exiles, <clears throat> voyagers, sojourners, strangers, aliens, and pilgrims. These are words used in the various translations of the New Testament to describe Christians. To describe those who belong to Jesus Christ. In 1 Peter, we see that in chapter 1, verse 1. In verse 17 of chapter 1. In chapter 2, in verse 11, so exiles, voyagers, sojourners, strangers, aliens, and pilgrims. And these words, they also describe a state. They describe a state of being. A state of being in relationship to something. And in this case, it's the state of being in our relationship to the world. We no longer belong to this world. This world is not our home. So whether we have traveled extensively throughout the world or whether we've grown up and lived in the same small town our entire lives, we are now exiles, voyagers, strangers, aliens, and pilgrims here on earth. At the very moment that we received Jesus Christ, the moment that we came to faith, our relationship to this world was permanently and forever changed. In fact, John, uh, Jesus tells us in John 15, 19 that you are not of this world but I chose you out of this world. And then Paul confirms in Ephesians that we are now citizens of the kingdom of heaven. At the moment we received Christ, our citizenship, our citizenship was also forever changed. We are now citizens of heaven, citizens of the kingdom, with the rights and the privileges and all the duties associated with that kingdom. Citizens who are called to live, to breathe, and to uphold the values and the culture of that kingdom. A switch of allegiance. We have taken an oath of fidelity to a new king and to a new kingdom. And not only are we citizens of heaven, but Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians that we are also ambassadors. We are ambassadors of reconciliation. We are ambassadors for the purpose of the kingdom. We are ambassadors whose duty is to reflect, to represent, and to advance the values, the interests, and the purposes of this kingdom. <clears throat> Let's look, though, how Peter describes who we are in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. 
1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. He says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You know, the you here is plural. Yes, we are strangers, we are exiles, we are pilgrims, but we are not solitary individuals. We are not lone wolves out among the field. Rather, we are a special group that has been brought together for a special purpose, a special mission. <clears throat> and Peter here, he's actually drawing on Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and verses 6. The, the very same purpose for which God formed the nation of Israel is the same purpose that he gives this special group of pilgrims. We are a chosen race, a chosen by God before all time to be part of this group and to be part of its purpose. We are a royal priesthood. We are those who are to represent God, to reflect what he, was, what he is like, and to aid people in reconciliation to this God. We are a holy nation. We are those whose lives are set apart and those whose lives strive for the righteousness of, of God. We are to be different in life and different in character. And we are a people for his own possession. In the French, this is un peuple acquis. That is, a, a people acquired by God. We are those who belong to him and for whom his son has died. And today we call this special group the church. And the special purpose of this special group, again, 1 Peter 2.9, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. But what does that mean? It means simply this, that we proclaim the glory of God. We proclaim the glory of Christ, the goodness of God, the greatness of God, his excellent works, his grace, his mercy. We proclaim it to a world that is yet in darkness. We declare the glory of God. We bring God glory. This is great commission purpose, and this is great commandment purpose. And as we study the scriptures, we learn that we are to do it with all that we are in our thoughts, in our attitudes, and in our actions. It is priority purpose. It is governing purpose. We do it together. We do it boldly. And we do it in love. And we do it with relentless fervency and with lives, lives that are fully surrendered to proclaim the glory of God and to advance his kingdom. Kingdom priority. Kingdom prioritized lives as ambassadors to a hostile world. Yet I need to ask you, does this sound like our American church today? I'm going to be surprised if you say yes. The American church has a great history. It really does. Once leading the nations in reaching the world for Christ. But what about today? Thousands, we know this, thousands of churches are closing their doors every year. Attendance is declining and giving is waning. Population growth is outpacing professions of faith. 
seminaries are seeing declines in, and they're cutting back their programs for those who are enrolling for full-time Christian service. And the number of missionaries that are willing to dedicate their lives to full-time Christian service is declining year after year. Yet, if we look at the global south, if we look at Africa, if we look at Asia, if we look at South America, these areas are seeing great growth in Christianity. In fact, in this century, they are expected to become the dominant centers of Christianity. One author has even suggested that the phrase, white Christian, may soon be an oxymoron. So what, what, what can church? What is happening that has distracted it from its great mission and from its great purpose? Well, I want to offer you a couple of observations. Observations from the African perspective. Some lessons from Africa for the American church. And I'm not going to have time to go into all the details and all the differences, so I want to really focus on, on two key things that we've noted. But I want to let you know I don't share these to imply that the African church is perfect, because it's certainly not. It has its own issues and it has its own struggles. And in fact, more and more, globalization threatens to lead it into the very same traps of the American church. Rather, I'm sharing these because of culture and because of the very way of life in these countries. They have remained closer to the biblical perspective than we have. This is not a message of rebuke. It may seem like it, but it is not a message of rebuke. It is a message of love. I love Christ Church, and I believe that you do too. Rather, it's an opportunity for us to get an outside perspective on American Christianity and challenge ourselves to see if we are truly on mission, if we are truly on our purpose. And so the first thing I want to address is the culture of comfort and convenience versus safety and security in our American culture. See, American Christianity has fallen prey, fallen prey to a culture of comfort and convenience rather than service and surrender. See, if we are honest with ourselves, we're going to admit that our generation is unfamiliar with suffering, unfamiliar with suffering because of basic want, basic want of life necessities or the persistent presence of deadly disease. That's not to say that we don't know suffering, but we don't know the suffering of perpetual want for lack of food, for lack of shelter, for lack of, of basic clothing. We don't know what it's like to live with malaria or cholera or typhoid is very real in everyday occurrences. <clears throat> Such suffering is not the daily bread of most Americans. Yet we fear it. I fear it. We fear it. We fear its possibility. We fear its effects on us, on our family, or on our futures. We work hard to insulate against it. We build up barriers of protection from it. Whether it's in food, whether it's in money, whether it's in clothing, everything that we might need, we have it, and we have it in abundance. In fact, our medicine cabinets are full of preventatives and medicines right, to help keep us healthy or to restore health the moment it fails. We build up storehouses against the day of want, security and protection. And this is celebrated. This is celebrated in our American culture. 
In fact, it's expected, right? You are not wise. You are not wise in our culture if you have not personally guaranteed the safe and secure future for yourself and for your family. But our culture doesn't rest there. Having security, we have become rabid pursuers of comfort and convenience to make our lives as comfortable and pleasing to ourselves as possible, to make our desires realities. Bigger homes, bigger cars, bigger toys, bigger entertainment, treasures on earth, to make ourselves comfortable, to pursue pleasure, and to pursue self-gratification. We convince ourselves that these things are useful, that these things are necessary, and that these things are needful. In fact, we've come to believe that these things are God's blessings on us for our faith and our goodness. We deny the prosperity gospel, but we practically live it out. We convince ourselves that we deserve such things. In fact, they are our right to have, and that's a right that is to be defended. And we guard our comforts just as ferociously as we seek our security. We fear losing them. In fact, we equate their loss with suffering. Do you doubt that? Right? If you doubt that, just go home and turn off your Wi-Fi quietly. Turn off your Wi-Fi for about three hours and watch the reaction of your family. Right? And so what do we do? We redline our paychecks. And we redline our schedules to ensure our safety and security and for our comfort and for our convenience to secure and to build our little kingdoms on earth. In fact, this pursuit is built into the American lifestyle. It's built into the American psyche. It is culturally embedded. Right? We live it and we model it in our lives and we live it and we model it for our children. Yet as Christians... This is not what the Bible calls us to. The Bible does not call us to live a life in pursuit of security and safety and comfort and convenience. These are fleshly desires which wage war against our soul. In fact, such self-seeking, self-gratifying, and self-loving things are enemies. They are enemies to our Christian walk and to our Christian service. Look down a couple of verses at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Rather, as sojourners and exiles, the Bible calls each and every one of us to a radical surrender of self to God and for his service. To lay down our lives as living sacrifices, as Romans chapter 12 verse 1 tells us. To, to renounce all that we are and all that we have to serve him. To go where God leads us to go, to do what God leads us to do. In fact, in truth, it's a biblical requirement if we are going to be true disciples of Jesus Christ, true followers of Christ. A complete and unconditional surrender is what is required. Luke chapter 14 Verse 33 says, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has 
Renounce all. My life, my family, my reputation, my career, my finances, my security, my comfort, my will, my rights. To lay it all. And Jesus says, you don't do this. You can't be my disciple. That's hard stuff. That's hard to hear. And then as we're reading scripture, we remember what Jesus told to the rich young ruler when he asked him what he must do to inherit eternal life. Clearly, the rich young ruler was a Baptist because he was following all the rules that he was supposed to follow. But Jesus says in Mark 10, 21, that you lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. Surrender the very basis for your security. Surrender the very basis for your trust in yourself, all this wealth that you have. Surrender your security and surrender your comfort, and come and follow me. And for us, who have so much wealth, that hits us. It hits us right at the point of our fears. Our fear for our safety and our security. And our fear of losing our comfort and our conveniences. Especially as we know that Jesus pulls no punches in letting us know that with an authentic and surrendered Christian life comes suffering, comes difficulty, comes persecution. What will Jesus ask me to give up if I surrender? Will it cost me everything? Will I lose my comforts? How will I live? How will I provide for my family? What about my health? What about my reputation? Will people call me a fool? Will I be persecuted? Maybe. Maybe. Maybe not. That is the great unknown of the great adventure that Christ calls us to. We aren't given the plan and then asked to surrender. We are told to surrender, and the plan is revealed to us as we go. But really, in truth, the two real questions being asked here are, do I love God more than my comfort and security? If God calls me to surrender all, will God be enough? If not, we're never going to move until our love for God overwhelms our love for the things of this world. We cannot serve both God and mammon. And the second question is, if I lay my life on the altar, can I truly trust God? Can I trust him more than myself? Can I trust him more than the security that I have built up? Can I trust God to have my back? Can I trust that the comfort of God is greater than my earthly comfort? Yeah, I know. I know he says, seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you. But is he really going to do it? Can I really trust him to do that? See, we're never going to totally surrender until we can rightly answer these questions. We might do a little, and we might give a little here and there but we're never going to be all in. And perhaps this is why our African friends are a little bit ahead of us in this area. 
See, they often walk the path of great want and great suffering, and they have very little in the way of comfort. Their minimal comforts and security don't compete with their love for God. And they have learned that they can trust in God. They know that they can trust Him. They have seen Him in action on a regular basis, providing in the midst of their great want. So, how does this lack of how does this lack of surrender affect the health of the American church? Well, first of all, our witness. Our witness is greatly muted. You know, because truly, we look no different than the rest of the world around us. Other than our profession of faith, our life pursuits and priorities are largely the same as our neighbors. They're just wrapped in a Christian blanket. When our hope and security is based on what we have built on earth, we offer no amazing testimony to the world of our trust in God and the life lived surrendered to him. The second thing is that our service to the Lord is muted. And that limits the reach of our work. We're only, gonna, we're only going to serve and surrender as far as our comfort zone extends. When our comfort and security is threatened, that is the limit of our service. And surrender is not easy. I know this. I struggle every single day with my surrender and service to the Lord. And when God calls us to it, it's hard. It's sometimes painful. It's hard to give up comforts that we've already tasted. It's hard to let go of direction and control of our lives, even to God. Yet if we want to see our church as fully returned to mission, to our purpose, it's going to begin through fully surrendered lives. In fact, one of the American comforts I'm missing right now with this pulpit is a good cup holder. <laughs> Put it on the list, Daniel. <laughs> the second observation, and this is, this, is, this is much more recent in American culture, is that when it comes to our voice, when it comes to our influence in society, we focus more on politics and prosecution than we do on proclamation and persecution. You know, America, America is a unique animal among nations. It has a strong cultural heritage that is founded in part on biblical concepts. Surrounding its earliest days, the church was enlisted to promote and to even to preach on, on these founding principles. Some of our founders were Christians, men with strong conviction that they brought to the table in forming our, our early documents, in forming our country. It is a nation that is built on the rule of law, on a representative government, and unprecedented, unprecedented rights and privileges granted to secure and protect individual freedom and opportunity. And although it is not a Christian nation, the fact that many Christian principles were woven into our founding documents have often led it to be thought of or believed to be a Christian nation, especially within our churches. It is taught or it is implied that it is this very Christian heritage for which God has blessed us and for, which he, and for how and why he has made America great. And we believe that it is this very Christian heritage which must be fervently guarded 
and maintain to secure God's ongoing blessings, to protect our rights. To lose this heritage is to lose our nation. Yet within our current political and cultural climate, we find that many kingdom values and morals have been greatly compromised or abandoned. I think of abortion. I think of human sexuality. I think of gender identity or marriage. These things immediately come to mind. And we find that many of the protections and rights that we believe that we have as Christians are now being threatened. Rights that guarantee the free exercise of our faith. Rights that, if lost, are likely going to lead to direct persecution. And while not necessarily based or grounded in biblical truth, we find that we face laws and certain political movements that we feel risk our personal safety, risk our comfort and convenience, or could lead to the the downturn and fall of our nation. Universal health care, immigration, socialist agendas. Our nation, some would argue, is at the risk of crumbling from within. Some perceive that God's blessing has already departed the country. The question sometimes is asked is, how much more until we lose our country altogether? And so, we seek action. We seek action and we put hope in the political and legislative arena to protect and to reestablish kingdom values and morality to protect our rights and our freedoms, to prevent persecution for our faith. We seek action and we put hope in the political and legislative arena to counter movements that we fear are going to impact our safety and security or our comfort and convenience or could cause our nation to crumble. We seek action and put hope in the political and legislative arena to preserve our heritage and to preserve our nation. Yet, These are neither the priority focus of the church and Christians, nor the primary means that we have been given to influence society. When it comes in national preservation rather than kingdom proclamation, rather than our kingdom priority. See, friends, the church transcends any and all nations and has no national boundaries. It has no allegiance to any earthly nation, to any earthly entity, or to any political system. The mission of the church and those who make it up has never been to establish the kingdom of heaven on earth. The church and those who make it up has never been to assure that a particular nation is conforming to God's laws or to secure and protect individual rights and freedoms. The mission of the church and those who make it up has never been to preserve any earthly nation. The church and those who make it up can, and they should, give voice to such things. But such things are not its purpose, not its priority. Rather, we have a kingdom priority. In 2 Timothy 2.4, Paul says this. He says, No soldier... No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. So now we have another term that we can use to describe ourselves, soldiers of the kingdom of Christ. So we are pilgrims, we are exiles, we are sojourners, and we are soldiers. We are not to be entangled in earthly pursuits, but driven with single purpose to serve the Lord. Kingdom priority focus. 
a single purpose of proclaiming the kingdom, proclaiming the gospel, glorifying God, making his name known, and growing the church. Our mission is proclamation, regardless of political, moral, or religious climate. Our mission is proclamation, whether we have the rights, privileges, or freedom to do so. Our mission is proclamation, even in the midst of persecution. Our mission is proclamation whether the United States remains, remains firm or whether it falls like Rome. Our immigration priority is the kingdom of heaven, not the U.S. southern border. I want, to see, I want you to see how John Piper has said this. Now, he said this in regards to his role, his role as a shepherd to lead the church to be prepared to carry out his mission to carry out its kingdom proclamation purpose. Here's what John Piper said. I am am 100 times more passionate about creating Christians and churches that are virtually minded in a socialist America, in a Muslim America, in a communist America, than I am in preventing a Muslim America or a communist America. My main calling is not to help America be anything, but to help the church be the church. This does not mean that we are to be apolitical or to be uninvolved. As ambassadors for the kingdom, we must speak for kingdom values in whatever country that we call our earthly home. But political action and legislation are not the primary means by which we do this. They were not the means of Jesus, nor are they the means that he has given his church. I cannot find one area in Scripture where Jesus sought political means to advance his message. And I can not find one one reference in Scripture where he has instructed his disciples to seek political means to advance his message. In fact, we are not going to truly change society by politics and legislation. We are not going to legislate morality. We may guard a kingdom value, and we may limit sinful action, but legislation will not change sinful hearts. We may secure rights, but legislation will not change sinful hearts. Legislation transforms people from earthly lost sinners to glorifiers of God. It will not make people citizens of heaven. But when the gospel is proclaimed... When the gospel is proclaimed, God is glorified. And when the gospel is proclaimed, hearts and lives are transformed. And when hearts and lives are transformed, then God is glorified. And when lives are transformed, often society is transformed. I remember the story of a missionary in Cameroon who had gone to a, a city in Cameroon. And the city was surrounded by small villages. And she described this this city as dark, and the villages as dark. And I don't mean that they didn't have electricity. They probably didn't. But more to the fact that they were spiritually dark. They were lost. Evil was abounding. But as missionaries started to go into that city, she said she watched with time as the city became light. As the gospel and the power of the gospel transformed lives. 
Now, she said the villages around were still dark. The gospel hadn't gotten out there yet. But the gospel has the power to transform societies by changing hearts. In fact, the power of our voice is not in politics and legislation. The power of our voice is in the gospel of Jesus Christ and the message of the kingdom of God. And the power of our voice is in the gospel of Jesus Christ spoken in love and in gentleness. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asked for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Now this political action, this national preservation drive that we have is not such a great struggle for our African friends. See, their culture and their heritage is not based on the biblical principles that they risk losing. They don't have the full weight of the rights that we have, the rights that we may struggle to surrender. Nor do they have, really truthfully in most cases, a political voice. Often to act politically is to invite hardship, to invite persecution, to invite death. They live among corrupt governments. The only real voice that the African church has, the only real voice that African Christians have to transform their societies, to transform lives, and to transform culture is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, how does this political rather than proclamation focus affect the health of the American church? Well, we become distracted. We become distracted from our primary purpose of kingdom proclamation to pursue national interests, to secure our nation, to secure our rights. And in turning inward, we're losing focus. We're losing focus on our global mandate. It becomes about our rights and it becomes about our nation rather than every tribe and every tongue. And so often... So often we damage our testimony. You know, I'm, I'm pleased. I'm pleased that I don't see this from within the body of our church. I don't see this in Faith Linden. But I see it in so many other areas. Okay? In our Twitter-fired climate, in our social media climate, politics and legislation lead to heated debate. They lead to heated debate. They lead to extreme polarization. They lead to extreme language where we not only try to stamp down people's ideas, but then we try to stamp down the very people themselves. And we end up cursing those who are made in the image of God. We create great barriers with the very people that we are trying to reach with the gospel message. You know, recently I read of the pastor, a pastor of a church in Virginia. The church is called Friendship Baptist Church. You know, he changed his sign, church sign out front to read, America, love it or leave it. Did you catch the name of that church? Friendship Baptist Church. This pastor prioritized nationalism 
and he prioritized patriotism over the kingdom proclamation. You know, he polarized half his congregation, and reports say that half the congregation walked out the following Sunday. Friends, nations come and nations go. God is sovereign. We saw that in Daniel. We saw that in our study in Daniel. He raises up nations and he raises up leaders and he tears them down to accomplish his purposes. The times of a nation and the times of its leaders are in his hands. And we distract from our purpose when we prioritize the temporal issues of temporal kingdoms over the eternal kingdom. We distract from our purpose when we prioritize politics and legislation which cannot transform lives rather than kingdom proclamation, which is the only means to it. So as I bring the message to a close today, if you are in Christ, I believe, I believe you know this. I believe you know these things already. I don't think I'm giving you anything new. I believe that we know it. Yet if we have been raised in this culture, and it is ingrained within us, we act and react according to it, according to the culture by reflex. And even when we try to break free from our culture, it's really good at lulling us back into conformity. But to break free and to see the church in America return to its purpose, return to its mission, we're going to have to want it. We're really going to have to want it. Not just the casual want. Not just the want that says, oh, that's kind of nice, I kind of like that. But the kind of want where we're all in, all after it, with free from the enemies of our surrender. We're going to have to break free from our safety and security and for our comfort and convenience and risk be calling a fool by society because we're not seeking those things anymore. We're going to have to arrive at the point where we love God more than we love these things, where we trust him completely, not only for our eternity, but we trust him for our life here on earth today. And we're going to have to get back to the place where our kingdom proclamation is prioritized over our national preservation and over the protection of our rights. That's not to abandon our role, that's not to abandon our voice, but to use the means that God has given us for transforming hearts and for transforming societies, his gospel message. So I want to thank you for giving me the opportunity to share a little bit today as a perspective from Africa. And Pastor, if it's okay, may I pray? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, <clears throat> your word is our guide. Yet so often we are influenced by the culture around us. It is so easy to be a part of that culture, to ingrain it. And even with our special American heritage, sometimes we, we confuse that heritage with what your word has to say. Sometimes, Lord, it calls us, causes us to get off track in our mission. And to some degree, we've done that, maybe to a great degree. Lord, as we seek comfort, as we seek security in every aspect of life, and we guard it and we protect it, and we hear those words of surrender, but maybe they scare us and maybe we don't really know what they mean. 
Maybe some of us are in the point of surrendering in our lives and different things. We're getting there, but we're not yet to the complete point of surrender of everything. And Father, I would count myself among those. It's a battle for me as well. And I pray for, Lord, that you would help us to want it. That you would help us to want it as you want it for us. Because we know through that, that even in the midst, if you bring the suffering, if we have the hard times, if we have the difficulty, if we have the persecution, if we lose our security, if we lose our comfort, that you are there. That you will comfort us. And the joy that you will bring us is going to surpass any of the loss of these things. We know that intellectually, but sometimes we, we don't know that inside. Lord, help us to have that trust, that gospel-proclaiming church that you want us to be. And Lord, help us to have the right voice in our society, the voice that proclaims the kingdom above national preservation, that, provi- that proclaims the kingdom to help change society. It's the only method and means. Lord, let us not get entangled in these earthly affairs. Let us lend a gospel voice to it. Father, I just ask this all today in Jesus' name. Amen.